So many cannabis growers now um, are starting to be certified by what's called um, GMP. Um, and then there's another one, um, and it's called GACP. And so this is, from my understanding currently, these are regulations that are almost considered to be pharmaceutical grade. Um, and I, I've been into a few facilities that are certified, and um, it, is, it is extraordinary to me <laughs> that the, the, the extent at which these growers go to, to get these certifications. Um, I mean, you're talking about walking into a facility where the office is completely separate from the growing facility, and then you have multiple um, entry points to where you have different stages of sanitation that you have to go through, right? So from washing of hands to taking off clothes and putting on lab coats and booties and making sure that if you have facial hair and everything, it's all covered up. And then you, you go into a certain, you go into rooms in a certain order, so that uh, you don't contaminate one room uh, with the other, let's say if they have a disease or a pest in there. And so, and even in between rooms, you, you dunk your feet, you put new booties on, um, you spray yourself, and then you go into another room. Uh, and then the, the ingredients that these growers uh, are subject to using in these facilities are um, all biological. Uh, they are all bi biologically active, as I'm talking about entomopathogenic fungi, or um, many, many of them now are only using beneficial insects. From at least my experience so far, GMP is, is uh, the next step for the cannabis industry uh, and to be able to offer what's considered to be pharmaceutical-grade product as well as, I would assume, food-grade product for the products that you've mentioned. Right. Yeah. When you bring up something interesting that we have a lot of growers now using like entirely biological control, because um, especially like in the early days, you'd see some crazy stuff. I remember looking up some kind of like spider mite control just for plants in general. And anytime you Google spider mite control, you, you come up with a lot of weed growers talking about <laughs> their spider mites. And um, some guy was like, oh, yeah, I just get a 50 gallon barrel and I fill it with, you know, like this pesticide to whatever dilution. And I just stick the plant upside down in it for a couple hours and then I take it out and then they're gone. Um, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Which is terrifying. Right. So because cannabis is such a high margin crop, there is actually or it can still be quite a bit of pesticide use depending on the grower. Um, because pesticides are very expensive. So for cheap crops, it's not really worth it to do that. But for something where you're making bank on it per kilogram, like cannabis, it can be a lot more worth your while and you can afford to do some crazy stuff. So some people did and some people do. So I, I would love to hear more about kind of how that's moving forward and we're hopefully getting away from that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good point. And I could understand that being a concern at the beginning when the industry was really young. You know, some of these, we call them backyard practices, you know. Um, but I, I'm quite impressed with how uh, the industry has changed and how it's changed so fast. Um, and so what I've seen is many growers, you know, if anything, they're, they're taking into account proper IPM protocols, integrated pest management, um, and they're using, you know, they're, they're using dilution rates um, to where it's very, very cost effective, even with the price of cannabis. Um, and when we think about pesticides versus biologicals, and uh, beneficial insects, I would say um, beneficial insects are the most expensive. Then you have biopesticides being oils, soaps, uh, you know, fungus, and then you have pesticides, which would be the cheapest and traditional pesticides and also the mo most harsh. 
And, you know, with uh, multiple other industries have been influenced positively by, you know, the boom in cannabis. And so uh, let's say, for example, I, I, I work closely with BioBest, um, and that's a beneficial insect and pollinator supplier, one of the best in the world. Yeah, they're based in the Netherlands, which is kind of, <laughs> they know what to do. They know what to do. Sorry, go ahead. No, they certainly do. And I, I learn from them every day also, but they, you know, they even find ways to be most efficient at how to apply beneficial insects. And they call that the, the, the different delivery methods. You know, like you can have a, you can have a sachet. It's like a little rectangle paper sack that hooks onto a, um, a stem of a plant. And within that sack, you have a rearing system of beneficial mites that constantly patrol the plant for six weeks and keep it clean. Um, and these different techniques are, are coming out based on you know, the cannabis industry being able to afford these beneficial insects, which in regard to just environmental sustainability of you know, typical in-consumer concerns, this is great great news. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. <laughs> you know, fantastic. for these, these advances in these insects. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's been one of, the, I think, the biggest challenges in agriculture that nobody talks about is to get this good IPM. Like, we talk about how we need to use fewer pesticides, but to replace that, we need to move to really good IPM, which means you need to not just be a plant farmer, but also a bug farmer. And yes. not just one kind of bug, but probably a whole bunch of different kinds to take care of all your pests, right? And yes. so that just takes a lot more human capital and practice and kind of like dialing it in. And that's something that agriculture as we have it today, like we really kind of treat it like farmers are these passive recipients of whatever technology people see fit to develop, right? Um, but in order to really do like integrate all that stuff on the farm, like you need to have farmers who are a lot more active and insightful and involved. And we do have a lot of folks like that, but because it's often based on just kind of being born on a farm, you know, like there's no way for people who are good at it to really start farming, like until you've already been working for 40 years and built up a nest egg because you worked in tech for 40 years, at which point you don't have those IPM skills. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And it's, it's to the point now where growers, you know, they're, they're, they're understanding this fact and they're investing in teams. You know, like most growers that I come in contact with, they have an I, either an IPM manager, depending on how big they are, and that's their sole responsibility, or they have an IPM team. Right. And that yeah. that's their focus. It's not growing plants, it's keeping plants clean. Yeah, and I think that's something where cannabis really is, it works very differently from the standard agricultural world, is that, um, you know, number one, there's a ton of revenue, so we're able to onboard a lot of people right now. But I think we kind of see farming as a solo endeavor, but I don't think anything really worth doing can be done alone. And cannabis is just a really unique market right now where it is a lot easier to bring a lot of people on staff. You'll see that in other farms like the quote unquote corporate farms, but they can actually, I mean, they can hire specialists because they're bigger. And so they can kind of build those teams that have that on-farm human capital in ways that often smaller family farms cannot. So I think that's really the thing that makes them unique and a little bit more tilted towards building teams as opposed to like, well, here we are, how are we going to do this today? You know? Yeah. Yep. And I think they have the ability, like you mentioned, you know, just with the, you know, the ability for that crop to bring in a certain amount of revenue, they have uh, they have the ability to take specialists from other industries. They sure are doing that. <laughs> and it's um, and, it, and it makes sense. I mean, 
you know, when you have a completely climate-controlled environment, uh, in some ways it's not near as backbreaking as acres of greenhouse that are subject to extreme conditions based on the natural environment to where, you know, growers have to spend 13, 14-hour days, seven days a week in a greenhouse. They're much better um, they would much rather work in a controlled environment where they're able to tweak their environmental system and make sure just things are in place. And I'm not, I, believe me, I'm not trying to say that uh, <laughs> in an indoor environment it's that simple. It's certainly not. But it's a completely different work uh, life, I guess. And um, in other industries, you know, we're starting to see the transition of a lot of these growers and specialists who've come from these giant organizations and giant, you know, 20, 30-year-old greenhouses who are now moving into cannabis and of high value. For sure. Yeah. And it's really interesting because I think it can be, and I love greenhouses, don't get me wrong. Like, I love them so much. Um, have spent a lot of time in them. Like, there was one semester, like back in school, where I finally first started working in a greenhouse, and the people I lived with could always tell I'd done a shift because I would like I was happier when I came back home. <laughs> but at the same time, like you also do, like particularly when I was working greenhouses in Florida, you spend a lot of time in 120 and 130 degree greenhouses, or like there's a thunderstorm and the thing's about to blow down, and there's tons of lightning happening, and you're like, okay, if the lightning gets really close, then we just hide under the benches because it's like a Faraday cage, and that's what we're gonna do, you know. So it, it's okay. Yeah, to have and more what control. ways is the glass gonna shatter above your head? But it was yeah. plastic. It was yeah, <laughs> it was one of those. But everything's popping in and out of the joints, so it's super loud, and and you're just gonna like, we could all die in here. This is fun. Uh, <laughs> I know. It's been interesting to watch that because my background's greenhouse, completely greenhouse. um, And working with fluence has been the only time I've really worked with indoor growers. You know, I I did a lot of indoor propagation, but that's not finished crop production. And and so it's been interesting to see that the sheer differences just between the working environment between the two. Like in in some cannabis facilities, I don't know if I've seen one window uh, based on certain regulations that I'm thinking to myself, I mean, I... Part of my life is is the sun, you know? right? You're like, this uh, especially, is especially when you are in love with plants and horticulture is your life, and that that to me was kind of depressing to see. But that's that's the reality of it right now. Is it like a security measure? You can't have people like being able to see what's inside and go, "I'm going to get me some cannabis." Exactly, and so like I've seen some growers. Um, they use like uh, you know some of the foggy glass that you see in in bathrooms, bathroom windows. Yeah. They usually use those windows so at least some sunlight can come in, but nobody can see through it. That's fancy. All right. Yeah. So there's there's I guess there's been strategic ways around it because people understand how how that actually contributes to overall well being. Yeah. You know. Sunlight is a plus. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. Yeah, there was a there was a time when I was working in the greenhouses, I had been in a major that was housed in a basement. And so like I was literally spending all day in basement classrooms and basement laboratories, <laughs> you know, and you kind of like crawl out and then you start working in the greenhouse and you go, wow, I just feel so much better now. So it, it can make a big difference. You know, it was the soil science department. So I guess like somebody thought that was funny. but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when you're in soil science, you have to experience it. So yeah, you're just in it. Oh, wild times at the greenhouse. I worked in one where like it was just kind of older. And so there was some kind of standpipe where they removed the lower section, but the the top section of it was still installed and it was rusted out because it's a greenhouse. And to get some stuff done, we had to like get up on the benches and stand on the benches because we're dealing with fairly tall bushes. And at one point I just stood up and like right into the bottom of this rusted up standpipe. So I like gouge my head on this thing. That was super fun. So hopefully indoors, you do have less of that, which would be fine. 
So. Yes, I would. I would think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially like, with like we mentioned, you know, the different certifications that are that indoor facilities and even food crops are having to deal with now. Those. Like you mentioned, that's not gonna. That's not a problem then. Right. Yeah. Like hopefully your worker safety is a little bit better. Um, in greenhouses, you can just have like a slimy coating on everything because there's algae everywhere. Because um, it's warm and humid and it's full of nutrients, and so you can get a lot of slips and trips and falls. Um, so hopefully indoors, because we have more control over the environment, we can we can control that a little bit better. So that's that's a lovely thing. run into anybody using biochar in their substrates. That's funny. Um, when I was in grad school, I had a uh, another grad student who was working on biochar. Um, and no, I have not seen that in, um, in indoor facilities nor in greenhouses. Uh, the main substrates I see are wood fiber, um, coconut core, and peat and rock wool. Those are the those are the ones that I'm seeing being used uh, the most. And within cannabis, you see a lot of rock wool because of its ability to stay sterile and it's not, let's say, as messy as core and for other reasons. But there's disadvantages to it as well. Um, I mean, at the same time, you can't recycle rock wool very well. It's just limestone that goes into a, a, um, a landfill, in my opinion. But uh, but peat uh, peat slowly. Um, I would say uh, is getting more and more. Uh, what's the, what's the word? It, it's not as readily available as it used to be, mm-hmm. for multiple reasons. Whether it be rainfall induced by global or climate change, you know, so yep. we're having a lot more rain in times that we we weren't we're not used to. So it's harder for the trucks to get out in the bogs, or um, we're starting to get down to the bottom of the the bogs of uh, very very old. Um, bogs where you start to have a lot of higher pH levels and other issues. Um, coconut core is, I think, kind of the next transition away from peat. They start to do blends and then coconut core and wood fiber uh, was surely, in my opinion, uh, the most sustainable. Right. Um, but it's starting to be used, but it's different in its porosity and you have to blend it to a certain extent with core or peat right. to fit to the moisture practices that growers are used to. Otherwise, it's a whole different moisture ball game. Right. You kind of like figure out how it works in your system and yep exactly so yeah i didn't mean to go off there but oh no those are the ones i've seen never seen biochar um you i hear about living soils i work with some growers that use living soils um but yeah that's not really one i've worked with what is living soils yeah so (laughs) i think that could be explained by multiple people in multiple different ways but um (laughs) it when I come in contact with it, uh, many growers, at least their objective with it, is to have, let's say, a living environment in the soil to where you don't bring in added salts for nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And so you have different microbials, different bacteria working interchangeably with mutualistic or symbiotic relationships to where you can produce these these uh, minerals for the plant naturally. And so, like I said earlier, you know, we have to be careful, in my opinion, to try and mimic what's happening in nature because the you know we're trying to satisfy a human objective indoors and sometimes the pace at which we need to push plants it's hard to do that with processes exact processes from nature and so i think that that industry um, while it is a hundred percent percent valid in trying to be more environmentally friendly which should be highly supported by most it's a challenge right now because it's a whole nother complex science to try and maximize all of those organisms while at the same time trying to understand plants in a controlled environment system 
Right, for um, sure. It's a whole other, yeah, it's just, it's something else. And many, many people are doing it. And I've seen some people do it at scale quite well. Uh, but yeah. So that kind of sounds like it's sort of like a compost-based system. Yes. So compost, um, and that could be defined a few different ways, but like uh, you, you can add different amendments like uh, uh, worm casings, or, you know, you can even add, you know, different species of nematodes and trachoderma and mycorrhizae and, you know, how they all interact together and have relationships with the roots and each other and have relationships with, you know, if you add certain peat, you know, certain microbials need to have a carbon-based substrate to interact with to produce um, antibiotics that then repel pathogens and amazing so like kind of like a bug salad love it yeah yes yeah. <laughs> the thing i think about is when if, if ever you've gone outside and you've stuck your hand in you know i hate using the term dirt but you stick your hand in dirt and it's it just smells really good and it's dark um, most of the time that is what a lot of these growers are trying to master indoors gotcha okay yeah, and a lot of times in that in that respect, nature has us has us beat until we figure it out. I, I do remember now reading about you know the possible uses of sewage, and uh, you know one of the most non renewable minerals, if we're thinking about you know giving plants the proper minerals to grow, is phosphorus. And I and I, I remember reading how you could you could you know there was a way we could use sewage to. Um, have, I guess, a continual resource of phosphorus available in a plant form, but maybe it was, you know, once it's converted to biochar. That's interesting. Yeah, and that's it's kind of interesting because, you know, when it comes to sewage, there's basically two things you can do with it. With that much volume, you can either put it on the land and farm with it, you know, or you can dump it into the ocean. Those are your two options. That is it. I mean, you can stick it in the landfill, you know, I guess. So, you know, <laughs> three yeah, options. Yeah, no, you make good points. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, as a food safety professional, yes, you. But, you know, raw sewage is not the only option. There's all kinds of ways you can treat it. And I think charcoal, you know, it makes it very light, makes it odorless, kills everything that's in it. But it keeps those nutrients. I'm like, this feels this feels like a good call. Um and just the equipment that's flexible enough to take all those different kinds of feedstocks is still pretty new. So I don't think folks necessarily know that it's an option. So I just like to yell about it all the time as we hear here. Yeah, no, I think it's a, yeah, it's a good point, definitely. 